0: Welcome back to The Grand Project. Today's episode is really a lesson on love. With our last episode, we launched a special mini-series for the holidays to tell the stories of our grandparents who have passed. And today, my good friend Elizabeth Houck shares the lives of both of her grandmothers, Lilia Rivas Ganduya, who was her abuelita, and her gram, Betty Bollinger. This episode is about much more, however, than just two women's lives. It's about identity, especially identity in terms of generational impact and the influence of our families, both found family and blood family, on how we express our identity. And I think it's about mourning and joy and the strange bond between these two feelings. Here's Elizabeth.
1: I'm Elizabeth Rosa Howe i'm living in columbia south carolina um i'm i don't know what all you want to know about me <laughs> <laughs>
0: whatever you want to share sure
1: yeah i mean i'm so i'm i i think i should start by saying i'm mixed race um because it feels really relevant for the conversation we're about to have my mom is mexican and my father is white and so When we talk about grandparents, there was a lot of presence of biculturalism in my household growing up and really shaped who I am. And especially when we put that in the context of being a a newfound southerner without roots. So it's not like I could trace back to my great anybody who lived on this land. Um, My grandmother is an immigrant from Mexico, uh, originally from the state of Oaxaca, Coyantes. And she lived in Acapulco and Juarez ultimately before she immigrated to the United States. And my white grandmother, <laughs> my Graham, she is a kind of a product of having generational land in Huntingdon, Pennsylvania. My dad is actually or was actually a tenth generation Huntingdon, Pennsylvanian, in that very small town. You know, it's ten generations ago that they that they immigrated from England. So there's definitely a an interest of land and what that means and and where we grow up because i remember explaining to people all the time that well i'm not really from south carolina and now i claim it as my home even though it's not my ancestral home
0: right that's very interesting so i guess before we talk a little bit about all of these years that you've taken to kind of reflect on your relationship with both of them and also what you've kind of taken from both of them. Um, I want to have you just describe each of them and who they were when they were alive. Yeah,
1: so it immediately brings such a big smile to my face to think about who they were when they were alive. I'm the last, I have no remaining grandparents at this point. And I know for this conversation, we're going to be focusing on my abuelita, my Mexican grandmother, whose name was Lilia Rivas-Candulla. She just passed two years ago. It'll be two years in September. And my Graham, Betty Bollinger, who passed in May of 2016, just two years, two weeks after I graduated college. And I'll start with my abuelita because I feel like I really talk about her the most <laughs> to my friends, and I, I think is what even prompted this discussion. Yeah. She... Lived to be 86 years old and was incredibly vibrant is the first word. I think anybody who knew her would say that she was very talkative. She would talk to people for hours. And when she was bored, she would make phone calls and say, you know, really sweet things like, "Hola, <laughs> like, and we treat you like you're the most special person in the world when she's already done that to 10 other people. We have a very large <laughs> family. Um, And so saying, you know, hello, my queen. Oh, it's so good to talk to you, all this stuff. Um, Very much loved, very lovable. She was, I mean, if you can even give her five feet tall, just this little, (laughs) loud, bossy um, person and incredibly vibrant and was able and was so, so generous and was very giving to people. She expected, I think, a lot of people too, but very giving of people, of her, I mean, when I was younger, she would take you back in this room where she had all these shirts that were folded up, all these Mexican shirts with, you know, the, if people are familiar, like the embroidery, the very traditional Mexican shirts and mm. t-shirts of where she go. And she had boxes of jewelry um, I think it was very important for her who kind of came into having wealth or some money, right? Breaking breaking the generational poverty cycle. Mm. Um, all her things were who she was and she was very much willing to share them with people. Um, you can never get her to sit down, very chatty, always, you know, bebopping around, always had some some agenda, something to say to somebody, um, but had a, love, a lot of love in her heart. Um, She was a very spiritual person. I wouldn't say religious, but she would spend the first two hours of her day praying for everyone in her family before she would even get up out of the bed. And she, I mean, absolutely this colorful person Um, and I remember listening to like mariachi music so loud in the house and like, it was just, it was just loud, you know, there was a loud (laughs) sound always because, you know, when we try to capture the memory of anybody and in the essence of who they were, we really only have the memories of our experience with them. Mm -hmm. So I can share this and talk about who she was and she's, you know, this, but also so many other things to so many other people having had nine children having nine children of her own, um, two who died when they were very, very young. So actually 11 total, but nine um, total um, now who I consider my, my aunts and uncles. And, you know, 22 first, uh, first cousins of mine, 17, now about to be 19 uh, great-grandchildren that she had. So, mm-hmm. I mean, big family, just, just in her direct line. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really important to her. My gram, um, she was just this also conversational. I mean, and Kitty <laughs> you know, was probably was like, wow, this explains so much about you. I know. That's exactly what I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't mean, know. I tell on myself, but also very conversational. I mean, I remember we would wake up in the morning, and even when I was very little, I, we'd wake up in the morning, I'd have my little child's coffee, you know, like milk with like a drop of coffee in it. Okay. And I'd sit around with my gram and my pap, uh, who's actually my my step-grandfather, um, and my dad. And when I would visit them up in Pennsylvania, we would just talk, which is kind of weird when you think about it, an eight-year-old just having these conversations. It was seldom right. like Elizabeth go play kind of thing. It was like, no, sit with us and, and let's talk. And... She was very she didn't judge anybody she you know of course held her own opinions and she didn't pass judgment on people. She could just as easily say that's them, that's who they are and that's it um also very loving also had a lot of things i mean i I think about you know what are what are actually the tangible items that I have remaining from either of these people and Honestly, it's not very much, which is a little ironic considering they both had so much stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but my grandma could real, she had this sharp, sharp memory. And I think that's actually my greatest loss of, of her is all the stories she would tell. Because I think a lot of people's grandparents and family members do this where they have lots of embarrassing stories about them. And but there were certain stories that really stuck out to her that she would always tell us, and it was as though she wanted to make sure that those stories were passed on, even though she remembered everything. And she remembered everything like it was yesterday or a week ago. I mean, it wasn't some distant memory. That's incredible. Yeah, it was very cool. So, I mean, just listening to her, and sometimes, you know, it'd be long-winded. I knew I couldn't call her and it'd be any shorter than an (laughs) hour, you know, but... She I mean, she always did. And she would talk about things going on in the world. She stayed you know, she stayed aware of of world events. It wasn't like she was ever pigeonholed. I think she had this really she was very interested in, in people's lives and what's going on in our world and um and telling stories. And I, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I, I know I feel like I'm rambling, but her memory is the thing that sticks out to me because it was so sharp and my dad had that too. So my dad passed before she did. Uh, my dad passed in 2005 and my grandma passed in 2016. So there was some filling in of gaps that I think my gram had to do in terms of even telling stories about my dad and who he was mm-hmm. uh, because I was 11 when he passed. And I can say I didn't call her enough. Sometimes I, I think that's, that's uh you know, we say we don't want to live in regret, but I think that that is one of the regrets that I have because there's so many, I know that there's so many more stories that she had to share. And I, for as much as I learned from her to not pass judgment on people, to make sure we we share our stories, to make sure we just are sitting with our, our loved ones and over a cup of coffee, uh, calling on them, checking in on them, checking in on their families. That is something that I, yeah, something I, I really wish I had done love. Mm -hmm.
0: This might be putting you on the spot a little bit, but do you have a story of hers that you'd like to share or that really sticks out to you and is really indicative of the kinds of things she would tell you?
1: Yes. I have a story. I have a story that I love that she would tell about my mom actually. And the first time she met my mom, My parents were 21 when they got married. They'd been dating a couple of years. And my dad married my mom. My parents got married. I shouldn't say he did anything. But my parents got married before my gram had met my mom. Really? (laughs) Right. And it was very quick. My mom was about to go to Korea. It was, you know, everything. Everything was faster in the 80s. I just want to say that.
0: Time just sure.
1: Right. (laughs) So... My grandma met my mom and she remembers and she would always say, you know, she has this really great slight like Pennsylvania Dutch accent also that I cannot impersonate. Um, But she would always say, you know, when I met your mom, I just thought she was just the sweetest little cute thing. She was so little. She was so cute. I mean, mind you, she really was like 99 pounds. So she
0: was
1: (laughs) small. Um, And she's like, yeah, and I remember she made us this Mexican rice you know, this, that orange rice with the tomato and the onions. And I just thought it was so good. And she was just this cute little woman in my house and I'm looking at her and I'm looking at how this is, this is who my son chose to marry. And she just made us this, this Mexican rice. And it was just, she was just this cute little thing. I mean, and and like really like giving you this experience of this person, right. Mm -hmm. This is the first time I met her. Not, and this is like it was like a snapshot of her memory, and it almost gives you this GIF visualization of like being in the kitchen, my small mom who's making this Mexican rice, and this is my grandma's first image of her. And I remember she really, uh she remember she liked to tell that story a lot. Mm-hmm.
0: I love that, but I mean, I think, and we'll get into this too. This was kind of a good segue to my next question. I have known you for many, many years now, which is hard to believe that we are old (laughs) enough to say that. Um, But you also have that gift of really bringing in all of the sensory descriptions when you're talking, like whether you're telling a story or you're just trying to, you know, draw this picture of what you're trying to say. Um, Even through like, you know these examples, Um and so I want to ask you, like, what do you think? What parts of yourself came from your abuela and your Graham?
1: It's hard not to say, like, my whole self, because it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that I spent so much time thinking about them, and and my 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 abuelita in particular, because she was the last of my grandparents to pass away, and there was a sitting with who what did these people impart to me, who i am I and sometimes I feel like it's actually in their passing that I learned more about them and realized, oh yeah, I'm kind of like that too, for better or for worse, honestly, because there's there's space for generational trauma as well wrapped up mm-hmm. to, into that you know our our DNA changes in one generation. And so both of them endured tremendous trauma in their lifetimes because of abuse by their caregivers and or spouses. Mm. And so there's a lot of healing that I, that I deal with now um, related to that, but things that I got from them, I do like to think, and, and I appreciate you saying that I weave these details into my stories because I think that that's a hundred percent my gram, right? Like, my dad was the same way. It was, I want you to, I want it to be as vivid as though you were there with me. And whether that means the, what you saw, what you smelled, what you felt when it was happening. I want that all to be in there. Sometimes I feel a little robbed of that when people tell stories to me. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I don't just want the action. I want like the experience. Like I want to know the whole thing around that. Um, and I think also with my gram, I'm more than content of just Talking to people, just connecting with them over a cup of coffee, it doesn't even have to be anything fancy like <laughs> you know? and just enjoying each other's company and and just talking and that was the greatest thing that she imparted to me um, and I, I would also say in her not judging in her non-judgmentalness, I'm gonna make that a word <laughs> if it's not one. I think it gave me a lot of space to be who I am. And I didn't have to worry so much after her passing, you know, I wonder what my grandma would think of me. Whereas I do think I have feelings like that, particularly around being a queer person, um, someone who is very community focused and wants to create change in our communities, who is very political and involved in that. I really hope that I'm able to, pass on and hold space in the way that she was around not judging people because ultimately we all are just trying our best right we're we're just living our lives and she really truly believed that and and taught me that in just in her active listening and that's not to say she wouldn't, you know, interrupt you and and cut in and say if she if she had an opinion on something else. But it still didn't come from a place of judgment, which I think is very nuanced, actually, to have an opinion but not be judging somebody. And I think from my abuelita, hopefully, I can only imbue in, in a spirit of her living. She lived so vibrantly. She loved loved to travel and. Actually, one of her wishes when she was passing was to make sure that I go travel, Um, which, you know, of course, for the time that we're in now and the pandemic, that's a little bit more difficult. But it really was important that we saw the world and experienced other cultures. And also, I think from her, my excellent taste in jewelry, to be honest, making sure that when I leave the house, I look good like I feel look good and feel good because she really did that even if her jewelry could be really gaudy and her fashion could be a little outlandish at times there is something about you know did you show up for yourself today and put on a pair of earrings that I think a lot of other Mexicans can relate to actually Mm. that's very typical in Mexican culture Um, one of the first gifts most babies get are a little gold baby bracelet and little tiny gold earrings and it's the it's like our first gift and it is now, it feels like a way of showing up for myself. And also always thinking of other people. For my Wilita, I mean, her community was her family that she, that she created and her network of people all throughout Mexico that when she could visit, she could connect with and be with them. She'd bring them gifts. She's always thinking of people. And, and even in, 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 uh, wow, even in, in North Las Vegas, people would refer to her as la generala, which means the general. Uh, it's a, it's a conversation really? that sounds similar in English and Spanish. And I will say I do have some la generala energy, for sure. <laughs> you do. <laughs> I mean, I'm a community leader, as they say. It feels a little silly to say, but yeah, I have no problem taking the lead on things, saying, hey, here's what needs to be done. Here's what I expect of you, communicating that. And I'm also very good at, or try to be good at contacting people. If they're on my mind and I'm thinking about them, I want to let them know that I'm thinking about them. And and taking the lead in my own life to show up how how I want to for, for myself and other people.
0: Those are really special things. Um, oh, one more important yeah. thing, though. My love of food. How can I possibly forget? I was actually just about to ask about that because – Over the years, even like going to your mom's house, especially like in high school and college, we just always have had so many experiences around food. And I've always seen that with your family, too. So I was going to ask you, what is the importance of food in terms of this grandparent, grandchild generational relationship?
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: It is such an important relationship
1: because... My abuelita in particular, like I mentioned earlier, she is, she was a, a product of poverty. Um, her mother died when she was fairly young, so she got sent to live with her, her, and uncle, Tiantio, who were not very nice to her and made her work for everything. And she slept with the sheep. She was not treated as a child. And I believe that in that time she, there were a lot of things that she carried with her. She, I mean, even when I was younger, she had like dolls on the walls and stuff like that. But among my most favorite memories with her and my most important, I mean, incredibly formative stuff was sitting in her kitchen when we would wake up. We'd go stay in Las Vegas where she called her, her home. uh Once she moved from Mexico and she We would eat queso fresco, which is like this like white Mm -hmm. kind of crumbly mild cheese that is so delicious. And we just have fruit galore. I mean, any fruit you can imagine. You want mangoes, you want bananas, you want oranges, whatever you want. There was just fruit. I mean, it would be a whole table of like fruit and cheese and coffee. Mm -hmm. And that was just, you know, how would you start, we'd start the day. And then maybe we'd, you know, cook some eggs and do whatever. But also being in Las Vegas, that we had access to all these Mexican markets And so, I mean, it was, everything was fresh, 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 fresh. And we would also go to these buffets where a buffet is a really special experience (laughs) because there is something so joyful about trying all of these different foods on the cheap. (laughs) Yeah. And like my abuela loved crab, like, I I even remember, like, in my inner ear, her saying, like, me encanta el crab, and which in English <laughs> sounds funny. Crab is not crab in Spanish, by the way, but she would say crab. And so it sounds like, you know, me encanta el crab, but so we tease her about it. But she we would go to these buffets and just go all out. And it was so, there was, like, no shame around it. You know, like you're eating five plates and you're like, yeah, but it's a buffet. And in fact, she would encourage us like, go get more food because we paid for this. And so get as much as you want. kind of thing. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I mean, and, and in Las Vegas, like there's every kind of food that you can want, right? Like there's oh, so no much food. And so, yeah, like buffets always make me think of her because it's like, how can you have the maximum amount of joy for the least amount of money? and of course I mean we'd go to her house and she'd have all these weird things in the freezer I shouldn't say weird but they I mean really she'd be like oh yeah I have some soup that I froze six months ago it's in the freezer I'll thaw it out for you or like oh yeah, I took home some food. We went to this restaurant the other day. It's in the freezer. I'll throw it out for you. Like there was always food. And that's not to say how long it had been in the freezer. That's not to say the quality of the food before (laughs) it went into the freezer. None of that, but there was always food. And there wasn't a question if you were going to eat there. Mm. She did, however, sometimes get on these little health kicks where thankfully I didn't have to experience as much of it but some of my cousins did. And she would be very... She took really good care of herself. I mean, she was a really active person. She took all her little herbs and everything like that to keep her health. But she got in this period one time where she was making garlic and onion soup because she heard it was so good for your immune system, which is true. Garlic is good for your immune system. Sure. And one of my cousins was staying with her for a little while. And this poor child, I mean, he was eating garlic and onion soup. He didn't get sick, but...
0: Maybe sick of the soup,
1: though. <laughs> yeah, but there's other consequences. And like my Juan, who is the oldest of the oldest uh, son of the nine. Um, there's my Ana, who's older than him. And he has these jokes. I mean, my, one of my first stories, because even though there was food, she wasn't a great cook. And he would talk about feeding the soup to his siblings. <laughs> <So> <laughs> she would make this huge pot of caldo, which is like broth. So, you know, with caldo, you can throw in anything, like you can throw in the chicken bones and the whatever leftover vegetables you have and that kind of stuff and just let it simmer. It's really good for you. And my tío, though, he would talk about like he would take a sip of like a spoonful of the soup when she was watching. And then when she wasn't watching, he would throw a spoonful of the soup into his sister Anna's uh, bowl. (laughs) And so there's just there's all these like stories and jokes around food with my abuelita and. And I think that that's also part of how I cultivated such a really strong relationship with food. Like I love food. Um, But, you know, there's also a spirit of like, we need it to survive, but it also can bring us so much joy. So let's, let's try to do that.
0: And community through food, whether it's community as in like familial community or just in how you take those first steps into becoming a community with a group of people. And I feel like you've always done a good job of, you know, saying we're going for coffee or a snack, and that's going to inspire communication and connection.
1: Yeah. I mean, if I would be there, there's going to be food. Let's <laughs> <laughs> we'll just get that right. But I mean, even in, even in my Abuelita's passing there, it, you know, of course, all the family was able to get together, which was really wonderful. And if we, we all gathered at my Tio house, and he's always the one who has the parties, and that was kind of the the wish for my abuelita. As she was as she was dying was you know make sure y'all keep gathering. Menos y'all need to be gathering at Menos house. Y'all need to be meeting up, gathering together, being together, being around family. And you know one of the actually the last gathering that I had with my family was for her funeral. Um, and it was so particular that one of the first concerns was, was the mole and mole for people who aren't familiar is this really rich sauce that's made in Mexico. Sometimes it has, uh, it, it always has chilies and spices and sometimes it has cocoa added just depending on what region of Mexico you're getting it from. And she loved mole rojo. And it was like this concern of who who are we going to get to make the mole? And my team was like, oh, don't worry. I already know a lady who's going to make it. We're good to go. And there was concern over like what the meal was going to be at her funeral mm. uh, or at her her repast, I guess, as, they, as it actually is called. And, you know, like even thinking of how we gather and be around food and enjoy, how can we enjoy this food? I mean, there's so, I keep mentioning joy because I really do think that joy is a big part of who Maya abuelita was and what she wanted out of this life. And so, yeah, like if we can, if we can be around food, even if we're in mourning, even if we're grieving, how do, how can we find enjoyment in this? Mm-hmm. And even if it's only in the
0: food that we're consuming. That's really beautiful and something very different. Because I think we talk so much about like funerals being a celebration of life. And I think sometimes they are like they do a really good job of that. But I don't I think that we oftentimes either fixate in that and completely that completely overshadows the grief and the loss that's there. So that's a really beautiful thought. Um, Getting more into both of your grandmother's passings. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about what kind of reflection that brought about for you to to lose these two people who imparted so much to you over the years?
1: Yeah, I'm really grateful that I got the time that I got to have with them. I will say that, even though neither of them lived in state, and I remember being young and very sad about that. I sort mm-hmm. of envied people whose grandmothers were lived nearby,
0: can you talk a little bit more about
1: that? Yeah, my, so I, this is where I talk about the transplantness, the feeling of being kind of thrown into the South and not having any familial ties with the South because my, my abuelita was in Las Vegas for most of my upbringing and then she moved to Florida when she got remarried. And then my grand was in Pennsylvania. And it was always just such a chore to go you know you have to get on the plane to see abuelita unless we got lucky and you know she she decided to come to south carolina and with my gram it's this long 10-hour car ride to see her and so there wasn't a, a physical proximity and i think in many ways it felt like there also wasn't much of an emotional closeness as well because the time that i got to see them i was young for one and so the way you connect with people when you're young is very different than when you're older. So sometimes I still feel a little sad that I didn't get much of a time with them as an adult person, because I think the questions I would ask, and like I mentioned, the stories and that kind of thing would be so different now. Um, yeah, so distance, it was hard for, for physical distance not to feel like emotional distance and, and even distance with my connection with my family mm. overall. And I think my gram in particular, because my dad wasn't in the house after age six. And so I think there being something about, well, you know, my parents aren't together. And so how can I connect with you? Is it okay to connect with you? Even though nobody ever said anything to me, like you're not allowed to reach out to her. Mm -hmm. It still felt, you know, a little awkward, like, well, I feel bad if I call Graham, but I don't call my dad. Mm. And even after he passed, when I was 11, it's because we hadn't really had much of a relationship before then it was it, for me felt awkward for her it wasn't because she was like no i want to see you you're my grandchild and you i i wish we could talk more and we we did talk more i got to see her um we kind of made a reunion trip back to pennsylvania and i spent really good time with her after my pat passed and just talking on the phone i i tried to be more intentional about calling her and same with my abuelita, because she pretty much only spoke Spanish. She spoke a little bit of English enough to start a fight with somebody at the grocery <laughs> store, but you know, not, not extensive. And so when learning Spanish was really important for my connection with her and she would always say, you know, practice your Spanish and practice Spanish. I was like, I don't speak Spanish like that. Like my, you know, my mom didn't teach me Spanish because she moved to the States when she was six. Like you get to a point where you don't really do that. And I was I'm fortunate that I learned enough Spanish where in the last few times that I was able to see Maya abuelita and anytime we would talk on the phone we could actually have a conversation beyond like, Hi, how are you? I love you, okay, goodbye.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I, I'm I'm grateful for that. But and so I am I do think that technology facilitated the connection between us. And because physical distance, it's it's just so hard. Even
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, pre-pandemic, it's not like you could just hop in a car and and go see them. It wasn't an easy trip, easy access, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but as far as the, you had a question before that about their passing, and I think when my grandpa passed, it was very shortly after my pap had passed her second husband and who was really more of a I felt more of a kinship with him than with my biological grandfather and she literally died of a broken heart she passed in her sleep it's not like she was sick and painless and leading up to his leading up to his passing he'd been sick for years he'd had cancer among other health issues and she didn't really have any but I do think that that was that was her greatest love and in his passing I think that she lost um I think she lost a lot of joy in her life and I think she lost a lot of she was in such deep mourning that I think it would made it hard harder for her even physically to move around I remember her her hips started aching a lot and it was just harder for her to do stuff around the house. And, you know, as we get older, our physical bodies ail. but for anybody who's dealt with deep sadness and depression, we know that the physical body can often be a reflection of our emotional body as well. Absolutely. And so I think that that's what happened to her and it was, you know, and, and I did have the opportunity. She got to come down, to my graduation, which was a big deal because she was concerned about her physical health at that time. And like, if she would be able to like walk when she got here and that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And my brother who was in DC was able to go scoop her up from Pennsylvania. And then they came down here and she got to be here. So in some ways it feels like it was a, um, like a last hurrah in a way that we got to have that time together. And this was really felt like a closing out of my relationship with my dad's family even though i still had an uncle who was still living um my dad's half-brother it was still different because the things that connected me the people that connected me to pennsylvania which was this really ancestral land right like that we, we our family had been there for for a while and It felt like there's not as much reason to go back. So that was hard to kind of sit with that and realize I'm part of a dying breed, honestly. And with my abuelita in her passing, she was sick. She has COPD and she, you know, we saw, we saw that deterioration and it was fairly quick. I mean, she was going to the gym every day and swimming and doing other things and living actively. And then, you know, this, this coughing, and then it started to be that there were more tough days than, than not. And, you know, at the end she wasn't able to do much more than like go to the bathroom and then go right back to bed because it took so much oxygen for her. Mm -hmm. And in her passing, there was a very different sense of peace. Like I mentioned uh, the April before she passed that for the following September, we got to spend a lot of time together because she had to sit down, right? <laughs> I mentioned how she'd be running around everywhere and like, she's always on the go and she's always doing all this stuff. And she made a comment to me. She's like, yeah, you never would just sit and talk to me when you were younger, trying to guilt trip me. And I'm like, <laughs> you wouldn't sit down right. when I was younger, <laughs> So, you know, I'm fortunate that my, my Spanish was good enough and we were able to sit and because she had to. And so we, we would look at old pictures and say, hey, who was this and when was this and tell me more about this. And, like, her memory is very much, was very much colored by her emotional experience. <laughs> Whereas I think, you know, I mentioned my Graham's memory and and hers was very sharp and, like, as true to fact as it could be. But my... And my well, I was the details would change sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it just depended on that, on however she felt that day or however she felt about the situation that day. But I'm really grateful for that time that we got to have together because when it came to September, I impulsively bought a ticket down to Florida where she was in hospice, and I just had this feeling. And, and my mom, weirdly enough, she had this feeling. She was like, "It's going to be September 6." Like she knew. Wow. And she was like, oh, yeah, it's going to be, and she was like, in like September 6th, just kept coming to mind for her. And it, and it was. But the weekend before, which was Labor Day weekend, I had been debating back and forth if I want to go down there. Okay, I just saw her in April. Have I made my piece? And for whatever reason, I was like, no, I haven't. I haven't made my piece. And so I went down bought some expensive plane ticket. And it was so wonderful to get to be around my family in that way like watch even though we're cooped up in hospice and like drinking way too much coffee and eating fast food and you know the way people stop taking care of themselves when they're so focused on someone else Mm -hmm. we got to take turns you know okay you go back to the hotel and you sleep for a little bit I'll be here and you know and being there and also she was in such a different place because she knew her body was dying. And I think that does something to the spirit that's very interesting. Uh the doctors would call her morir vivir, which is there's a plant. It's called the it's the the sometimes it's called the sensitive plant, where if you touch it, its leaves kind of curl up, and then mm-hmm. if you and then if you let time pass, it kind of, you know, branches back out. And that was kind of what the end of her life was like. There was, I mean, I remember two weeks before she passed and I'm kind of saying it with a smile because it makes sense that my abuelita's life would look like a telenovela. Like she loved (laughs) novella, She would call them my story. Like, I have to watch my story. And of course her life mimicked that. Uh, At some point, our lives imitate the art, I guess. And she, it was two weeks before and my mom was like, you know, Abuelita's feet are cold. They really think this is the last night, all this. And, you know, they wanted to make sure we called everybody and let them know what's going on. And the next morning she wakes up, she's smiling, she's talking to people. <laughs> up and we're like, well, didn't you? Didn't they say, it? like the doctors were very confident that she was going to die last night. What is happening? And it was like that all at all at the end. So... It, in looking at how do we, again, like, how do we t- t- find these difficult times and still get some humor out of it, you okay. know, like, and not even in the most morbid of sense, but, like, what is is there anything we can smile about in this? Is there anything we can laugh about in this? And, and my my abuelita, while she wasn't very funny, like a jokester, mm-hmm. she laughed a lot. And I remember that, like, she had this very, like, loud, distinct laugh. And whether or not it was real or fake, who knows. But she she really did laugh a lot. And so I often think of that as, like, one of my favorite memories of her mm-hmm. is, is hearing her laugh because it kind of had this slight, like, rasp to it. Like, it was, just, it was just loud and boisterous. And, like, okay, can can is there something to laugh about in this? Like, even in the difficulty, even in the grief, can we laugh, take a moment to laugh? that like this morir, vivir thing happened. Can we take a moment to laugh <laughs> that my, my abuela, like as she lay dying, she started saying, Rosa, Rosa, like very softly, which is my mom's name. And everyone's like, oh my God, oh my God, go get go get Rosa, you know? And they're running through hospice trying to get her. And then my mom comes and she's like, you know, like, see, sí, mommy, like, yes, mom, what do you need? And she's like, no, la Rosa. And she's pointing to pink pedialite because in Spanish Rosa is pink <laughs> and my mom I mean she tells the story she's like I felt about as small as you could ever feel because here I was thinking like oh you know my mom needed me in this time to comfort her and she just needed her pedialite. like it's it's hilarious." And I think there's always, there's always, always joy to find. There's always humor to find in these, in these challenging times. And I think that's been my, my greatest lesson from my abuelita since then Mm. Um, is to make sure like, don't get stuck. That was really big thing for her. Don't get stuck. Okay. You're going through something difficult right now, but don't get stuck there. You got to keep it moving. You got to keep it moving. And that's, it sits with me. And I, I really think that, that, Joy is, uh, it's a byproduct of movement, you know, movement in the spirit, movement in the body, whatever it may be, but it helps us not get stuck
0: Mm -hmm. um, because
1: there's always something else to be looking forward to.
0: I love that. I
1: know. It almost feels like there's like a, like a bit about my gram and there's like an Aguila like episode. Like they're so, they feel so different and so connected in my brain. I just
0: want to ask you a little bit more about your both of your grandmother's passings and how that made you rethink your own mortality or the idea of mortality in general?
1: Definitely. So with their passings being two years apart, I know that for my gram in particular, that felt like the end of my paternal line in a way and that connection to that side of my family because she really was the last relative on that side that I felt kinship with and felt close to in that way where you know you pick up the phone and have a conversation. And because my dad had passed when I was 11 and she passed when I was 22, there was also a final note on the death of my father, who obviously is my direct line. And rather than passing feeling like this is the end of me, there's a realization that they still live on in these ways. And I do think that in, at least in the way that death had always been taught to me and talked to me about is, you know, this person still lives on through you. And I didn't really know what that meant until it actually happened with mm-hmm. with the end of that line and my direct blood relatives from it. And even this weight around carrying my last name of Hauk, which was my father's last name. And I'd always felt weird about it because I felt so disconnected from that side of the family. And Mm -hmm. in his passing, it became a thing to connect me. People ask me about my last name now more than ever. It feels like in some way of, Oh, are you related to these people? Are you related? I'm like, no, those aren't my people. My people are actually from Pennsylvania. And, Knowing that I carry this name, my brother and I are really the only two living relatives who carry the name from our our group, our 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 line of house. Oh wow! And yeah, right. And so this thing that I had kind of just felt was placed on me; it didn't really feel like mine. It actually started to feel like a, a connective fiber with them. And in my Gram's passing, realizing that wow, I need to be better about documenting some of the stories that I care about and I want to make sure that I'm not passing judgment on people and I'm truly giving people the time of day and, and remaining in my beliefs while doing so and believing that love can come about even after lots of suffering as it did in her life. So I and then with my abuelita, of course that, that was big because she was very much the matriarch of my of that side of the family and mm-hmm. was the reason we would go back to Vegas as often as Las Vegas is where they were and we would go back to Las Vegas and we would always stay with her. So there was something different about wow, we won't even be we won't be at her house anymore and we won't do these kind of things and And also, when we'd go to her house, she'd have she had all of these pictures of people, Mm -hmm. and there was a sort of depth in the space. And I know I talked about land and connecting to land, and of course, none of this land is ours because the indigenous people who inhabited before us. But I do, you know, think the connection to physical space, and in that, realizing that the physical space was completely gone now. Mm. Um my uncle ended up moving in there, but eh, of course they changed the decor, they don't have all the all the family photos, all the you know, all the everything that was in there too. So it felt like an an ending of a a connection to to her. Mm-hmm. Um because so much of my connection with her was in that physical space and I'm thinking about it now and I'm I'm sorry I'm a little slow to speech because I am thinking around my own mortality. I mean, I felt really deeply connected with her at the end. Like I mentioned, we'd spent time actually talking in a way that we never had. And up into her passing, even seeing her journey into death, I remember her her voice really changed in part because of the COPD, COPD but also because of the the what she was saying was so different. There was what a, do you mean? It was like prayers for the rest of our life is the mm. best way to describe it. She really wanted us to travel, like I mentioned. She really wanted to make sure that I got my mom out of the house. That was one of her big things. Uh, my mom deals with mental health stuff and so she really wanted to make sure that I continued to get my mom out of the house. She wanted me to be safe. She wanted to make sure that I found love, which the tone of that was different. Because all my growing up, she would always ask me, you know, who's your boyfriend or are these kinds of things? And she stopped making it about that. She didn't know that I was queer in her lifetime, but it was really different to hear, you know, I hope you I hope you find love. And I hope mm-hmm. you find someone who takes care of you. Because that's very different than the messaging I'd received my whole life up into that Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and it really did she was in such a spiritual plane and I think that this happens with a lot of people as they're dying that their bodies are transitioning into death and their spirits are transitioning into death Um, and that yeah so that's that's what it felt like it felt like of prayer for the rest of her life, and and her voice was just a lot softer and more like commands, like, Look, like you do this, you need to do this, these things, um, as though they were somehow prophecies for the rest mm-hmm. of her life that she knew she wouldn't be present for, at least not physically,
0: right? Wow,
1: yeah. And so then in her passing, I remember the week before she passed, so. That time when my my mom called me and she said, You know, tonight's the night, tonight's the end. I had a dream about her that I couldn't breathe. And it was like I was dreaming and I couldn't breathe. And I woke up and I immediately called my mom. And she was like, Yeah, that's not doing well. Hmm. And then after she passed. I'd had a really, it was about a week after she passed and I had a dream about her where she had come over to the family's house. We were all with me having dinner and it was like, you're not supposed to be here, but she had a message for one of my relatives and me. And I don't know. I think that there was just a, a really deep connection with her. It through dreams and through just feelings that I would kind of get about her, in um, mourning her because we'd take because I'd had time to mourn. I'd never had someone like that who I watched be sick, mm-hmm. and so seeing her die and her dying process was different because I think for everyone else up until her I had been very sudden deaths. And so the mourning process happens before, or the mourning process happens after. Mm-hmm. And with her, I feel like the mourning process happened before. And I think there was a, an awareness of we're constantly mourning. Whether it's people who passed on or versions of ourselves who are no longer with us, or versions of people around us who are no longer with us, whether they're they're made major changes in their lives and or if they've actually physically passed on we're always mourning and that was something I'd never really thought about quite so vividly until her passing of wow I'm actually not the same version of myself even when you were alive as I am now that you've passed and how we We never really take time for that, I think, as at least in in the United States. I don't think our culture lends itself to mourning and an awareness around that. You know, we get three days of bereavement after someone passes. And anybody who's mourned anybody, which I assume is almost anybody at this point, we know that it's much longer than three days. Right. And And, And it's also a linear process at all. It's a, it's a spiral more than anything. You know, we we journey along and there's sometimes moments that almost feel like they parallel themselves, but we know that we're moving. We know that time moves onward. And so we continue on that journey of mourning and I don't know that it ever really
0: truly ends. And i I've been thinking about this a lot, I think, over the past few months. I think probably a lot of people have just because... This year, especially, I feel like we've lost so much, whether it's like feeling we've lost time or we've actually lost friends and family in one way or the other and lost parts of ourselves. But I think the other side of that is in losing something and in recognizing that you are in mourning for this thing or this person or this experience, you you gain something too. And it's in gaining that you do become a different person than you were were on the other side of that, and I just think that the idea of these parallel moments as we go through this spiral, as you said, is a really it's kind of a beautiful beautiful uh vision of of what life is and how we travel through it. I really like that. I want to talk with you, and you and I have talked a little bit about this before, just getting into deep conversation. I feel like you are one of my friends who we call for a chat just to catch up, and we always end up having conversations that are, for me at least, so enlightening, and we have for years, and I think that's so special. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about the idea of family. And, and why, especially in, in American culture and really, I feel like in, in Mexican culture and other cultures, we put such an emphasis on this idea of being connected through blood or even marriage and, and how love is incorporated into the idea of family. Wow. I
1: could write novels on that. Um, and there are people who have written novels on that, right? <laughs> I think that we put so much emphasis on blood family. And not that that's bad or good, it just is, you know? But I do think that, particularly as a queer person, I was so in love with the idea of a chosen family and knowing that there were people like me who didn't feel connected to their families for one reason or another or couldn't be connected to their families for one reason or another in in, in in one of those reasons being who they chose to love and it felt so ironic to me all while I was growing up because my abuelita in particular was not accepting of the people and that's part of why I didn't come out to her in my lifetime and, or in her lifetime rather. And there was an, there was an irony of, I love this person. So you won't love me. Mm-hmm. And knowing that there are people in this world who don't feel that way. So it was really hard to journey through why my blood family would be the family who doesn't accept me for all that I am. Of course, I I do believe we have a connection to people, mostly, I mean, in part because of expectation. Like it sounds bad to say, I don't love my family, but when you really think about it, these are kind of just random people who get you're born into. (laughs) Um, And there's not really space to say, I mean, yeah, I'm connected to you. I'm deeply, deeply connected and attached to you. Um, Bell Hooks has a, a term called cathexis that she talks about in All About Love. And that reading that really summed up how I feel sometimes with my blood family. Of, yeah, I'm I'm connected to you. I'm deeply attached to you. But love is something so expansive and so open and safe and vulnerable and honest and unconditional. And I think and as I delve into what love is or is not, we, we have to examine that our first school of love, as Bell Hooks says, is our family. Mm-hmm. And so if we grow up in families or with caregivers who show us certain versions of love that are codependent or versions of love that are unhealthy or abusive, we have to spend a long time learning what love is because we know that abuse is not love. We know that codependency is not love, but we don't know that at the gate. We're just kind of making decisions based on what we think love is. And it's a really painful process to say, oh, my blood family didn't give me the version of love that actually feels like love for me. They gave me a version of love, sure, but it's not the version that actually is unconditional and makes me feel safe and fully seen. And I know that for me, it's very important at this point to show up as a whole person. And part of that is because of what I've learned from my blood family. Of I couldn't show up as my whole self. And still kind of, don't to be honest that's still part of my journey at 26 so yep there are my blood family members who know and there's blood family members who don't and in that time there's not a question of you know there's no longer the question of of who are you dating or who you know what is your life like now because Mm -hmm. my life is maybe something they don't want to hear about or maybe it's easier not to know but I have to sit with that. That's their work to do and not mine. But with chosen family and meeting people and getting to be loved by people and supported by people and doing the same for them in a way that is so full and there's no part of you that I don't want to know, or even if you do tell me something or share something with me that I call into question, I'm not going to, guilt you or shame you for being this way or feeling this way or whatever it may be. And not in a way that is toxic or, you know, binding to a point that we have no agency in the relationships that we form, but in a way that is expansive. And I think when love feels contractive, sometimes it can feel that way with our blood families. And I say that in large part because of the work that I've done with queer and trans people, um, also with black indigenous people of color that many times our blood families are not where we find acceptance in, in showing up as our whole selves and being and living our truths and that's hard to sit with I think <laughs> to say hey I was born into this family why don't you love me unconditionally or love me fully whereas these other people who I'm not connected with, or these other people who aren't supposed to love me. I put that in air quotes because we put a lot of what our blood families are supposed to do or supposed to be, even if they're not that, just let them be what they are. And of course we can heal together and express our boundaries and learn to love each other better as we continue throughout the course of our lives because at some point as children we become adults and so the way that we engage with our caregivers or our parents from blood relatives we sometimes go back to that place of being a child as though we can't set boundaries or don't have agency or just have to do whatever they tell us and be obedient in that way but we don't always feel like and we don't always feel like we have a choice we do do have a choice, and loving is a choice. Love is a choice. To love is a verb, and anything that is a verb means that we choose to do it at some point. There's an active. There's an active role of love. Love is an active thing. It's not just this blanket statement. It is what it is. No, mm-hmm. we have. I mean, we are loving to say "I love you." We are. I'm actively putting myself in a place of vulnerability because I feel this connection with you and you may not feel it back to me, but I love you. We just don't really talk about it in a way that feels fully inclusive and expansive. And with chosen family, I've known love that I didn't know existed. And having people hold emotional space for me to to grieve and to Mm. feel joy and to process shame and to heal and laugh and dance and do all the things that we do with people who love us. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful and truly life-changing. I mean, it's transformative what love can be. But unfortunately, our blood families aren't always that and that's okay i've had to merely make peace with that that's okay because i think i spent a long time wanting the validation and acceptance and love a love that was unconditional Mm -hmm. for my full self from my blood family and making peace and saying hey that's, that's okay because maybe they're not ready to love you like that because maybe there was someone along the way that didn't show them that love like I've gotten to experience from my chosen family and that's not to say that my there's members mm-hmm. of my blood family who I haven't felt that love with I'm really grateful to have a really loving relationship with my mom and my brother in particular but I do think that we we want something that maybe these people who are blood relatives don't always have to give
0: mm-hmm. And in talking to some other people about their grandparents and like the connection between generations in a family, you know, one thing that comes up that I think a lot of people would identify as like part of that relationship is the passing on of wisdom. And I think that comes both from the lived experiences of our elders, but also from the things that we see or don't see from them that we want to carry on as we age and as we start families of our own, whether they be chosen families or we start having kids and grandkids and that sort of thing. And I think that's really what you said is really important and for everybody to hear, not because it is so much about thinking about how we treat other people and other people who might look at us as part of their found family or you know, other members of our actual blood family too. I think that's really beautiful. The last question I have for you, um, I guess not that we wanna have <laughs> any regrets, but I just wonder if you could either ask, a question of your abuelita or your gram, or talk with them about anything. What what would that last conversation be?
1: That's a really, really good question. I think the question I would have is. What it's a really good question. <laughs> this talk about love really is what the question is around and who taught you love mm-hmm. and do you feel that you loved in a way that fully Fully embodied what you wanted love to be. Mm-hmm. It's a really hard question, Kitty. Like I'm, sorry, <laughs> I'm going to that because um, I think in my in my grieving processes, you know, having to grieve my dad at 11, I remember always like writing letters to him. There's like, What's going on in my life? Like, like you know, not like mm. what's going on. With you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I very much believe, like you know, we go into the ground, and that's kind of the end of the story. <laughs> and um, but I remember writing letters, and he came to dreams, and me uh came to dreams a lot with me. And I feel like I learned so much about him and his passing. And I know that we're talking about grandmothers, but um. I think our, our paternal relationships, like our paternal, our, uh, I guess, blood relationships with our parents are important, and they're kind of the step to that grandparent. Mm-hmm. So, in processing the death of grandparents is also processing the mortality of our parents, and I think it is different to have a, a situation where my dad died before my grand, and with my I believe that passing there is an increased awareness of my mom is next.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That grief I don't know what that process will be like. But with my dad, I remember writing letters and really just asking him like why did you do what you did? Um because he was physically and emotionally abusive and just didn't understand why would you do that and in really deep meditations I realized like oh it's because you didn't really know what love was and so I think that I have that question of of my my gram and my abuelita because I want to know for for these people who experienced a lot of hardship when it came to love my Graham had been abused by her first husband And my abuelita had been emotionally and who knows about physically abused when she was a young child and took a lot of people's. I don't know if I can curse on this, but I mean, she, for as much as she was La Generala, she also really took a lot from people that she shouldn't have. And I really Mm -hmm. want to understand why did she think that she owed people that? Why did she owe people who didn't love her? And what part of her receiving that deformed version of love changed her and made her think that love looked a particular way why love could have conditions why her grandchild who is queer felt like I won't be loved if I am this way And for my gram, I do think that their love was expansive. I mean, I, I never really felt like there were conditions, but also that was someone I wasn't as close with. So it's hmm. like even if there weren't conditions, maybe I could have found that acceptance and validation that I wanted. And and even so with my Graham, I mean, she found love in her lifetime, like a really healthy, beautiful love with my path. And like when I said she died of a broken heart, I mean, I really firmly believe that because – the love that she felt for him was so immense that it took a physical toll on her body to lose him. And may we only know love from our families, be it blood or chosen. And I mean, love that feels good and whole and unconditional and open and safe and warm, like all the things that we want from love not this version that we get in media or this version of what we think love should be or shouldn't be so yeah, I know that that's probably more of an explanation than you ever wanted for the question that I have for them but I mean it really got me thinking because I, I feel like I'm doing a lot of work around what love is and who deserves love and the answer is everyone. Mm-hmm. But my question is, why wasn't it me? Why did I sometimes feel like it wasn't me? Um, I kind of want to know what they would what ask them. Like what I kind of want to know oh. like, what they would want to share. <laughs> you know, yeah. the question they want to be asked because I'm like, here I am trying to come up with a question. (laughs) Well, maybe, maybe the question is like too much or like too heavy, but like what I kind of want to know, like, what do you want me to ask? And what do you want to share? And that way I can know that.
0: Yeah, no, I love that too, because I've been thinking a lot about that with my grandmother. It's like, I did start recording some of her stories before she died. And, you know, she seemed really willing to talk to me about her life. But then there's so much we didn't cover. And there's so much that I feel like I have not been able to ask her or my other grandparents too, like really just like personal human things, because there's it seems like it breaks some sort of decorum. I don't know that that's true, but internally it just seems like it, it crosses a line in some way. And it's mostly, it's nothing inappropriate, you know, on its surface, but just to know truly their feelings about, about deaths that they experienced and the grieving process there, especially about, you know, for your gram, losing a child, losing your father and what that was like. And for my grandparents on my mom's side, you know, watching a grandchild die and I just have a lot of things that I want to know on like a very human level, but I think it's kind of selfish too, because I really really want to know for my own self like to see how other people get through these hardships
1: that makes me think of the blood family thing you know like could we I, I think that for anybody who chooses to have a child so you know our gener- our grandparents two generations ago decided to have some kids and those <laughs> kids became our parents and like, did they want – what did they want out of family is also kind of what I'm curious about. Like, my abuelita had nine children, and my grandma had three. Like, what did you want from that? Did they want to be supportive? Like, did they want people who would listen to their stories and their innermost thoughts and these kinds of things? Like, those same questions that you felt would, were breaking a decorum, like, did they – Have space to share that, or was it just intended that? Oh, I share this with my spouse, or I share it with my close friends. I wouldn't ever talk to my grandchild about that because maybe there's a sense of it breaks a different kind of decorum. Like I'm an adult, so it's weird to talk to a child about this, or even talk to someone much younger than me. Like I mean, right? In your mid twenties, it's not like you're a little, you know, little child anymore. But I wonder at what point do grandparents think like, well maybe maybe I don't share that with them or maybe, I don't know. Like, I want to know, do they ever wish that there was that level of support? Like, in the same way that we want them. What is their version of that from their grandchildren? Because at some point along the line,
0: they had a family. And that's mm-hmm. how we got here. But what did they really want from that? And sometimes I wonder if it's generational. Because I think there's just things you didn't talk about um, or felt like you couldn't to anybody, friends, like siblings, anything. And I do wonder about that sometimes. And then I also like, I guess for me, this is kind of veering off topic, but you know, for so much of my life, I never wanted children of my own really. And now I'm kind of like hitting the point in my mid 20s where like I feel my biological clock ticking a little bit how ever crazy that is and I just wonder if these same kind of struggles the women especially in my family and other people who I've interviewed for this who are not related to me if they had the same sorts of struggles and I've asked uh, quite a few women I've interviewed, like, did you want children? And the answers are always, oh, I was always so happy to have a family. And I think that in a way it's kind of avoiding the question because I really want to, I'm really asking, like, did you ever have doubts about giving up part of your life and your body, sharing your body with this other living being and it's just very interesting to me to think about what you said the flip side of that if there are things they wish they could share with us that they feel like is crossing uh, some sort of invisible line
1: I think you're completely right that there were some things that you know just aren't talked about and I mean even you know with my grand she you never know, really talked about the passing of my father and in some way I wonder if it was that we were grieving parallel to each other like I know that you're dealing with this and I'm also dealing with this in my own way and just know that like we're book here and with my abuelita like thinking of, you know, she was very, very open. I mean, I remember there were sometimes conversations where she'd be on the phone with my mom, and my mom's like, whoa, I don't want to hear this. And my mom's like, I don't want to hear this, you know? So it's different to have someone be so open in that way who is an elder, and I'm sure it's different from your mom. And I don't know that I'd necessarily want to hear that about my abuelita either, but for someone who willing to share um and and I, I mean I'm more interested in like the the inner workings of the mind is mm-hmm. really what I would want to know and it sounds a little like what you want to know like you know yeah what was that? why did you decide to have children and I think it's really interesting of like wanting a family except I think my was kind of similar she like knew She was married to my abuelo who wanted a big family. So she's like, Yeah. And I remember one time saying, Yeah, I don't remember at the time that I wasn't pregnant because all the nine children were born within 12 years of each other. And she's like, Yeah, I just, you know. (laughs) And
0: for my grandma, I
1: don't know actually what her perspective was. And I kind of wish I knew, but I do know that for my mom, who came directly from my that My mom did not want to have children. You know, she, like, was very vocal about that. And it's somewhere along the line, I guess my dad convinced her. <laughs> <laughs> but it feels like, they, they, in me, and you and I have talked about this, like, um, I mean, these are boomers and the silent generation really, mm-hmm. who were who most of our grandparents. Um, for those of us in our mid 20s, they just kind of saw it as a means to an end is sometimes what it sounds like like well if I want a family I guess I gotta do this thing (laughs) which for us feels like such a transformative process like wait what do you mean I, I mean yeah I guess a family would be cool but if it requires all of that I don't know about that part but it was like in some ways where we think about how generous our grandparents can be in, in different ways be it in their wisdom or in tangible gifts or what have you or even just letting you into their homes and serving you food whatever generosity looked like it's realizing that they're also incredibly generous of their physical form like of their body to be mm-hmm. in service of having a family and you being in that family because they saw that well okay my nine months but I mean imagine how much bigger the other side of that is you know how imagine like what comes after the, those nine months and, and that is what I'm willing to do I mean particularly for grandmothers you know like because it is their bodies that birthed these children who became our, our parents
0: yeah well I think that's all I have for you and I, I have to say as always this has been just such a an eye opening and thoughtful conversation. So I just want to thank you so much for giving me so much time to record you and to ask you questions. And it's just so wonderful to hear about both of your grandmothers too. um, Because I feel like I know your family fairly well. And we've been to each other's homes over the years. And it's really nice to kind of see a little bit more into that. And into what made you who you are. So thank you.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It's kind of wild that in eleven years we were here now and talking about this. Um, especially because for both of, I mean, for both of us, the passings of our grandmothers, of you know, the matriarchs of our respective families, has been recent news in our friendship, mm-hmm. and it was really nice to be able to have a space for this. Too.
0: Thanks for listening to this special episode of The Grand Project. I am so appreciative of Elizabeth Halk not only for sitting down with me two days in a row to do this interview, but for the many years of friendship. And I'm thankful to all of you for listening and supporting this podcast. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, I'm Kitty Jane And this has been The Grand Project.